Hello listeners and welcome to the Afriwata podcast where we look to celebrate African history, people and culture by telling our story. As always, our hope is that it fills you with enough curiosity to go and do your own deeper research. Karibuni to any new listeners to the Afriwetu world. We invite you to check out previous Afriwetu episodes, which can be found on this podcast platform. Thank you so much for tuning in for the first episode of Series 4. Today, we are headed to East Africa for Part 1 of the Rwanda Kingdom. A shout out to my East African fam out there. Afriwetu has landed on your borders. Before we begin, please remember to visit us on our socials. Our handle is at Afriwetu across all platforms. But for now, just sit back and enjoy the journey. I wanted to start with a fun fact. The word, ibitekerezo. Although today the meaning varies depending on the context it is used. So, for example, it can be something that is said at a meeting or an agreement that is reached. For our context here on Afriwetu today, I shall refer to the more common meaning from ancient times that it roughly translated to mean things that happened in the past. See what I did there? So Ibitekerezo were lengthy and complex historical narratives from the days of old. And traditionally, they were told through song and poetry, usually accompanied by music, and were performed in a noble house by a male orator, basically a storyteller. The meaning then expanded to just that of telling stories, not just in the court, but also at local chief levels. Today, I'm the one telling the Ibitekerezo of my ancestors. So let's start with where we are in East Africa. The kingdom's modern location is really basically the modern state of Rwanda. So that was easy, right? So I'm sure you all found it on your maps. So let's get right into it. So this kingdom was fascinating to study, and I know I always say that, and yes, each time it is true. Anyway, one thing that really stood out is that although spoken of as one homogenous civilization, it really wasn't. It was, like past civilizations we've explored here in Afriwetu, a collection of kingdoms that had been absorbed and referred to as one. But for the purposes of Afriwetu here, we shall use a singular term, but please keep in mind this fact, okay? The official start of the kingdom is dated from about the end of the 14th century, 15th century AD with Mwami Ruganzu Bwimba at the helm. At that time, it was a much smaller entity located in Gasabo. Before their arrival, and this will make sense in a few minutes, I promise, who they are, there is evidence that the original inhabitants of the land had been working with iron, so already a matured industry in that sense, and they'd been doing so for no less than 2,500 
hundred years so way back speaking of way back looking at 1000 bc in the region when we look at the origins at some point we don't really know exactly the Twa people were settled in these lands and it was here that they remained they were then joined by another wave of settlers who tended to be more agriculturally focused and they were followed by the last wave mainly our kingdom's founders this last set of people are said to have come between the 5th and the 11th century AD and then again the next set in the 14th 15th century who by modern times have been labeled the Hutu and the Tutsi respectively. All these people made the lands their permanent home and each brought a special element to the civilization. So for example, our original inhabitants, the Twa, were absorbed and became an important part of the kingdom's fabric, most notably within royal circles and the rituals around the kingship. So now we're here, it's a good time to explore the origin mythical story because Again, it's just so much fun when we go into these. We find ourselves in the heavens, walking in the clouds, we hear the cry of a baby. Our guide tells us that is the cry of Gassani's son, Sabitsetse. She's one of the wives of Sherezo. This is their first child together. He already has two with Nyabunya. But there seems to be a big problem about his birth, whispers in the corridors and all that. But, says the guide, let me just start at the beginning. Of his two wives, Sherezo's favorite is Gasani. They have been together for a while without any children. Gasani was in despair about this, as was her husband, and they each looked for different ways to solve this problem. Sherezo consulted with the other spirits and deities, whilst Gasani confided in Impamvu, her trusted handmaiden of the issue. Impamvu came up with a cunning plan. She tells Gasani that she has understood there is a great power within the Imana, the sacred cow which the seers consult, so why not harness that power to get a child? Let's find an opportune time and steal the heart of Imana, the supreme power. But why, Impamvu? Surely this is madness. Gasani, my lady, I need you to trust me on this. Gasani finally agrees, and so they bide their time and are successful in their quest. The heart is in their possession. Now, says Impamvu, let's put this heart in a big pot with milk, seal it tight, and then store it away in a private and secure place, where only we will know of the location. Gasani made all the preparations diligently. Once the pot was hidden away, then Impamvu said, Now, every month, for the next nine months, I want you to follow these instructions to the T. Don't ask why, just do it. Understood? Gasani reluctantly agrees to this strange condition. Impamvu, you are really asking a lot. You still haven't told me why we stole this heart for starters. Now you have more demands, surely. Ah, okay, what are the instructions? Every day, come back to the pot and pour milk inside. At the end of the nine months, I will explain all to you, I promise. Gasani followed the instructions dutifully, coming back daily to pour milk in the pot, and at the end of the period, she went back to her maidservant. I have done as you have asked. It is month 10. What's next? Wait for three days, said Impamvu, and then go and open the pot and there you will find a baby. 
Kasani did as she was asked and indeed she found a baby boy. She was overjoyed at finally having a child and immediately sent word to her husband of this wonderful news. However, on hearing this news, Sherez was immediately suspicious of the boy's birth because he knew for a fact his wife had never been pregnant. What was this sorcery? He then sent his men to find and kill this baby boy. The two co-conspirators on hearing this nude hid the baby and his men had to give up the hunt. And things went quiet until... I am home! Where is this child who has appeared from nowhere? How? Bring him to me right away! Shereza demanded on his return after many moons. Gasani had no choice but to present her son. My lord, do not harm this child. He is innocent and is a gift. Please look favorably upon him, she pleaded. And then she brought him out. And in a flash, we are back in the present world. <laughs> said that on seeing him, this beautifully formed and good-natured boy who exuded noble character from such a young age, Shereza relented and even named him Sabitzetze with the nickname Mana coming from Imana. And for a time they were all happy but this was not to last as one day the true origins of Sabitzetze came out and this became a problem for all involved and he was forced to leave the heavens. Sabizetze and his older step-siblings, Mututsi and sister Nyampundu, were so close that they could not bear to be apart, so they decided they will all live together, falling from the heavens down to earth. They were known collectively as the Bimanuka, those who dropped from heaven. On landing, they landed in Ubari, in the Muzazinga region, at the lands of the king of Kabeja of the Bazigaba clan. But they did not come alone. They had the company of Mutwa, the pot maker, and also an interesting mix of animals. They had brought with them Mugambira, the hen, Rubika, the cockerel, Mudende, the sheep, a cow called Ingizi, a ram, Rugeo, and a bull called Rugira, and lastly, Ruzunguzungu and Rukende, the male and female dogs. In addition to these animals, the Bimanuka group also had with them vegetation suitable for farming, superior hunting techniques, skills in blacksmithing, tannery, and woodwork. And it is said they introduced fire. In time, Sabitsetse, who had since changed his name to Kigwa, married and had children with his stepsister, Nyampundu, and it's from them that the Abanyinginya dynasty traced their roots. A special mention of one of their children, their daughter, Sukiranya, we shall come back to her in a bit. Mututsi said, on discussion with Kigwa, moves across the valley away from their home. In these new lands, he established himself independent of the Bimanuka. Much, much, much later on, having stayed away long enough in accordance to what he and Kigwa had agreed, he went back home, but this time with a new identity. He introduced himself as Umwera and that he was looking for a wife. Quick fun fact, 
In Kenya, we have the Kikuyus who in the language Kikuyu, umwega is a form of greeting, are you well? Dope, no? Anyway, back to our story. It is then said that his request is granted and he is given Sukiranya, his niece's hand in marriage. They in turn had children who were the founders of the Bega, the Baha and the Bakono clans. And now it's time to leave our fantastical Bimanuka origin story. It was quite cool, right? And when it comes to our history, something that I do love is the interweaving of the two worlds because there are always elements that cross over and give us glimpses of how our ancestors' minds worked, right? So, on the more grounded side, Kigwa is actually said to have existed and is said to have been given the hand of one of Kabeja's king, kin in marriage on his arrival to the Zigaba clan's territory. And from this union was a descendant called Kazi. Fun fact again, Kazi actually means working Kiswahili. I mean, the links are just everywhere, right? Anyway, Kazi true to his name, Israeli, was a highly skilled man. This guy was not only a blacksmith, but he was also a tanner and an expert in woodwork. He is then said to have married Kabjega's granddaughter, and together they had a son, Gihanga, who is considered the official, official, official founder of the Banyiginya dynasty. We shall hear a little bit more about Gihanga later on in the show, but just a little because there will be a Legends episode about him in the future, so fear not. My Afriwatu relatives from Rwanda, you will notice that I blended the most common elements of this story into one. It would be so dope if you could send in other versions of this story to Afriwatu so that we can share them with our peoples. So now that we've finished with the origins, let's segue nicely into clans. And the reason why is because it's one of the most important societal aspects of the kingdom. The clans which existed pre-kingdom and continued on until the period we're looking at today. The understanding of clan positioning is fundamental to understanding the kingdom's foundation and the region as a whole. The people were split into various groupings, for example, the Inzu, the communities, the Murayango, the family lineages, the Ishanja, the Uboko, the clans, and so on. But all seemed to identify as being part of a clan first. Now, there were quite a number of clans. And for the interest of time, we shall just note some of the more well-known ones outside of the kingdom. So, in no particular order and their animal totems as well. These are classed as the pre-Nyiginya clans. The Ongera, animal totem was the Isha, which is a gazelle. The Enegwe, whose animal totem was the Ingwe. The Ungura, whose animal totem was the Ifundi. The Abasinga, whose animal totem was a Sakabaka, the eagle. And then we come to the Abazigaba, we heard about earlier and their animal totem was the ingwe which means leopard the ababanda animal totem was the igikona the crow you then the, have the abachaba whose animal totem is the impisi the hyena and you have the abagesera whose animal totem is the inyamanza the wagtail 
Then you have those who are now post Nyinginya. You have the Abega, whose animal totem was Igikeri, the frog, the Abaha, the Abakono, the Abatsobe, then you have the Abanyinga themselves, and their animal totem was the Umusambi, which is a crested crane, as we heard in the origin story. You then have clans that came much later on, and these included the Sindi, the Nyakarama, the Ega, whose animal totem was the Igikeli, we heard of it earlier, it's actually a toad, the Shambo, whose animal totem is the Intare, the lion, Sita, the animal totem is a Imbwembwe, the jackal, the Ha, the animal totem is a toad again, Igikeli. Then you have the Shingo, the Kono, the Hondongo, whose animal totem is the Ishwima, the egret. When it comes to totems, it's not as clear-cut as above, like I've put it. Some clans, in fact, like the Abatsobotse, do not have their own. Others share a totem. For example, the Usambi, the Crescent Crane, is shared by the Nyinginya and the Sindhi. Ingwe, which by the way also means leopard for a peoples in Kenya who are loosely termed the Baluya, um, is is held by the Zigaba and the Benegwe. Then you have the Igikeli, the toad, which is the Vega, the Kono, and the Baha. And then also the Singa, when it looks at, depending on where they are, they are either leopards, Ingwe, or Sababaka, kites. But essentially, these generic totems give a decent guide to what the, the, the clan's totems were. There are different classifications of clan entities or identities, and each is based off a matrilineal link or matrimonial alliances. African women, again, being pivotal in societal structures. We have the dynastic clans, which include the Nyinginya, the Shambo, the Hondogo, and the Tsobe, that are affiliated with Kihanga. Then there were the clans from the Mututsi, known as the Queen Mother clans, which were the Ha, the Kono, and the Ega. And lastly, the Basangabutaka clans, the Otothonus, which means indigenous, usually associated with the early inhabitants, but the jury is still out on that. And these were the Zigaba, the Gesera, and the Singa clans. They're fundamental in that they're the ones who gave permission for the others to settle, and they are known as the original owners of the soil. And out of each of these broad categories, the three big biru, ritual kings, are selected, namely from the Sobe, Kono, and Singa, as you'll notice from each one of those dynastic clans. The issue as to whether clans outside of their social importance also have a political function is one that, as of this episode's publication, the elders are still debating. Why it is worth stating this is because those who say they have no link state that clans in it of themselves are not royal in nature. Instead, there's a royal lineage which belongs within a clan. I promise this will all make sense in a bit. I would, though, love to hear from my relatives from the region their take on the clans and especially their totems. Please hit us up on our socials. So now that we have a little bit of context, let's move into the kingdom society and how it functioned. And I always think it's great when you just start with a party, specifically the Muganoro, an annual ceremony of the first harvest. 
This was usually presided over by the Mwami of the day, who had the privilege of enjoying the first fruits of the harvest. These first fruits that had previously been planted by a Miaka, a ritualist who was of the Zigaba or the Sobe clans, who formed very powerful court factions and not necessarily from one of the ruling clan groups. The Miaka would be given eight perfectly cast and never before used hoes. He in turn would then gift these to selected family members, including to the Muru. He would then proceed to cultivate a chosen piece of land and then plant. By the time of the Muganuro, when it came about, it was from this special area that the Mwami would eat the harvest as the first person and then signal that the feasts could begin. Now, let's leave the revelry and fun and look at some other societal concepts of the kingdom that I found interesting. Now, let's leave the revelry and fun and look at some other societal concepts of the kingdom that I found interesting. Now, as we don't have a lot of time, I'm going to go through them in brief because there's a lot we need to pack into this episode. Cool? First, we have the concept of umurayango, lineage, where communities could be linked by familial ties that were also political in nature. What you did see here was a coming together to form a community, one that tended to be between the pastoralist and agricultural groups, which actually usually bled into each other. One of the reasons for this was a symbiotic relationship where, in very general terms, very, very general, the former pastoralists would take on the role of providing a robust defense for the community against intruders and the latter the more agricultural would share their assets like property or livestock they tended to be under the rule of families or wokonde land which had been cleared and settled by the lineage occupying it or their ancestors as larger groupings emerged, there was a need to become more structured, and so this concept was incorporated as part of the overall governance and the social structure. And then again, in very, 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 very generic terms, and please note my emphasis on generic, when it came to a more stratified way of looking at the classes, it is said that those who were in the ruling class and the warriors tended to be labeled as Tusi, and the middle class Hutus, and the Tua, the spiritualists. The Tutsi wealth was largely based on the large heads of cattle over which they wielded great control. In some instances, they were also said to be distinct and identified by their height being amongst the tallest in the community. The Hutus' wealth and status in society was based on their skills as the agriculturists, the farmers, the merchants, as well as the taxpayers. The Twa were known to be skilled in the arts and culture, making beautiful pottery, as mentioned before, and they held the special status as a kingdom's ritualist, with key roles in the royal courts. Before we go any further, there are a number of interesting tidbits about the classifications we just mentioned, so I just wanted to share a few here. Cool? So one story tells of how the bond between the Hutu and the Tutsi runs so deep that when I read it, it sounded like each depended on the other. In fact, the creation of Rwanda is based on this fact, that the kingdom's strength is from a blood mix of the Hutu supernatural and the Tutsi military powers. 
That would create such a dope superhero, right? Anyway, from this came the blood pact that Mwami Rukwe, Chilima Rukwe, had to make with the inhabitants of the land in order to find a way to quell the rebellion within the new kingdom. Another thing is a notion that at this point in history, unlike today, the description of the two groups was not linked to one's biology or ethnicity. It had multiple sources, including ones of social status, identity, and so on and so forth. It was a much more fluid concept. I would love to hear from my Rwandan relatives their anthropological take on this, a matter that has been skewed by the devastation and destruction of colonialism. When it came to cattle, something that Rwandan society takes very seriously then and today, there is this concept of gifting cattle to symbolize a deep connection, be it socially or politically, as an alliance. This transcended all classes and was known as wake. The system was so much wider and it was used by those who had no cattle or even land to then have access to them to use in exchange for personal services. It then evolved into a more class-based system that favored the wealthy nobles over the rest of the population. Land clientship was also central to the kingdom, and here we see the use of the system to regulate how it was managed between the settlers and the landowners. And as we close in society, a good place to head to is the next section on the ruling class. And please, can we just accept that when it comes to royalty and the ruling elite, always expect some kind of random drama? Well, our kingdom here, they were no different. So, as we get into the ruling class, let's just kick off with some general knowledge terms within the nobility circles, okay? We'll start with one you've already heard, the Mwami, who as you all know by now means the king. Then to his queen, who was called the Mwamikazi, although this title came about only much, much later. And of course, as with every African society that is either matriarchal or places a high value on women, which is a lot of them, by the way, you then have the all-important queen mother. She was the most powerful woman in the kingdom, her title being Umugabekazi. Then you have the close kin of the high royals, the princes and princesses, the Igikomangoma and the Igimangomakazi, respectively. The Kingdom of Rwanda had selected courtiers and specialist historians, the Abachurabwenge, those who held the knowledge, who kept the genealogy of the royals, through the Uba Ubuchurabwenge, which is essentially the workshop of wisdom. Isn't that so dope? The workshop of wisdom and the official records. These were texts capturing the names in chronological order plus the achievement of all the Mwamis, Mwamikazis and significant royals from the beginning. It was the Abachurabwenge who upheld this institution and complex history of the kingdom. Now that we have all of that cleared, let's go back to the key ancestor of our ancestors, the founding father, Gihanga. So Gihanga was considered the first of the Nyiginya, the ruling dynasty of the kingdom. He was lauded as having admirable qualities of bravery and charisma. He was a highly skilled blacksmith. He was well-traveled and a skilled diplomat. 
There is a claim that it is he who introduced the sacred fire and the special rituals as practiced by the people. When at the helm, he set about expanding the kingdom from his base at Mubari. He was successful in this quest as he brought more and more regions into the fold under his governance, which he accomplished using both force and the age-old tradition of marriage, marriage alliances. And whilst we're here, one of the most significant marriage alliances that really solidified his status as a ruler was with the daughter of Jenny, who was a king of the Barenge dynasty of the Basinga clan. The marriage was a political win in a number of ways. For one, Gihanga was officially accepted and established in the Buhanga royal authority. Then, the king, who at that point had no male heir, bestowed upon Gihanga the privilege of a royal emblem, the Roga drum, one of the most important artifacts of royal authority. And then the other was the cow. And speaking of the cows... Gihanga also claimed a special relationship with this symbol, being recognized as Gihanga is the origin of royal cows. Gihanga Shihanzeinka Ngoma. Our Gihanga was revered and his grave was an integral part of the Ubiru rites, the ritual code of Rwandan kings and also where the Abiru paid homage. Gihanga is considered the founding father of not just the Rwanda kingdom, but because of his travels, also of other kingdoms, including Buhabi, Bunyabungo, Burundi, Karagwe, Ndoro, plus others. And actually, all of these civilizations will be covered by Afriwetu. And, as I said before, there'll be a special Legends episode on Gihanga in time, I promise. Now, as we leave the era of Gihanga, before looking at our next royal in much later years, a quick segue for just some interesting facts. So upon the ascension to the throne, the Mwami was bestowed with royal artifacts on top of the drum and the cattle. He also received the sacred fire. He was clothed in royal robes, of course, and was handed a scepter. Then, in accordance with tradition, he would then be given a special title from one of the five, either Shirima, Mutara, Kigeri, Mimbambwe, or Yuhi. These were then given on a rotational basis and each held the key to the expectations on what the Mwami's rule would be. These titles also reflected the fact that the throne was not just about an individual, but the Mwami was a representative of the crown. Right, with that in mind, the kingdom has a long list of illustrious Mwamis who are known for one reason or another, for this episode, we shall touch on a few before we wind down part one of this kingdom. Cool? Ruganzu Ndori. From the legend of Gihanga, we can only go to the famous Ruhanzu Ndori. In fact, it is claimed that the story of Gihanga is really about this warrior Mwami, and it's easy to see how. When Dori was a young boy, the nations were at war. His father was the then king, Dahiro Chamatare, who then decided that he needed to keep his heir safe. He therefore sent Ndori east to live with his paternal aunt, Nyabu Nyana, who also happened to be a queen in her own right, married as she was to Karemera Dagara, the king of Karagwe. Ndori remained with them and only after his father's death did he make the move to return home to claim his throne. 
and it is his reign that then embedded the and established the dominance of the Nyinginya dynasty and in the process brought the new royal drum. Ndori was a military strategist with and a well-heeled warrior king with legendary campaigns under his belt. He led armies into victory after victory, conquering kingdoms left, right and center. Under his reign, he greatly expanded the Rwanda kingdom's territory. Those who fell directly under his rule, under Ubuhake, were obliged to submit to it. Others were allowed to retain a level of independence, also giving leeway and respect to the ritualistic rulers of these kingdoms. Following him, we will look at Mutara Chilima Rujugira. His reign was interesting to Afriwetu for a number of reasons. Well, for starters, his ascension to the throne involved his having to overthrow his own uncle, Ruaka Karemera, who was his late father's half-brother. Are we together? Karemera is said to have taken the throne illegally because actually it was Rujugira's, not his. In fact, this illegal move was so shameful that his name was removed from the official king's list for a time for effectively being a usurper. Then when Rujugira was triumphant in his quest for the throne, he ruled as a co-regent for about eight years, and then for the last four years of his term, he was a sole regent. Another interesting tidbit was his influence on the kingdom's culture. Starting with the oral praise songs and poems around military triumphs, the Ibirugu, he encouraged these cultural expressions, especially those that were about him. And it worked because there are many about him. And to be fair, why not? Alongside that, he also emphasized the importance of the Yangombe religion in society. The last thing I wanted to mention in relation to Rujugira was how he consolidated the military. During his reign, he felt that the threats from the different kingdoms from Burundi to the south, a war which dominated his reign, Gisaka to the southeast and Dorwa up northeast, he just decided to strengthen the army through increasing the number of soldiers whose units were then deployed across the kingdom to the different borders, setting up defensive military camps and creating a standing army. It was under his watch that the military then stepped up and stepped into taking a greater role in the governance and administration of the kingdom. The result, a formidable military that we'll hear about in part two. He is actually celebrated as one of the kingdom's greatest heroes. From him, I wanted to look at Yuhi Gahindiro. He's on the list because I think the story of how he becomes a ruler is, well, quite a story. It all starts during Mwibambe Mutabazi's Sintabayo's rule. There was a smallpox epidemic in Gisaka. So in order to protect his people, this ruler shut down the border between his and Gisaka's polities. This was also happening at the same time he was fighting with Gatarabuhura. So two big things going on at the same time. And in a moment, this will be relevant, I promise. And then in the midst of all of this, he mysteriously gets a gift of bark cloth that is sent to him. But mm, somehow it didn't get to him. In fact, it landed in his brother's home. Okay, well, it was stolen by his brother. Anyway, after a while, this brother fell ill and later died. Sentabayo, who had unfortunately visited him 
was also infected and he too died. So far, this is not a great outcome, I know, and it actually gets worse because Sintabayo's official son contracted the same disease that killed his father and uncle and succumbed. It turns out that was all a part of the plan because the bar cloth had been sent with infected and diseased lice to Sintabayo by his enemies. And it worked because, you know, seemingly now there's no air. But, yep, there's always a but. There's always a twist to the tale. Enter Nyirahui Nyiratunga. Now, Nyiratunga was a widow of one of the kingdom's war heroes who also happened to be Sentabayo's uncle. You can see where this is going, right? Well, she and Sentabio had a son, our very own, say it with me, Gahindro, who, before his father had died, had been handed over the rituals of kingship and his mother was given the Umukabe Umugabe Kazi title, which, as you'll all recall, came with it the power to name the next ruler. It's obvious who she chose, right? Our Gahindiro's ascension to the throne was secured and his mother ruled until he came of age. But outside of how he came to power, his reign was also notable for its significant change to the kingdom's administration and he made a concerted effort to centralize power. One of his political tactics was in the rejigging of the courts. He added non-hereditary positions to temper the power and clout wielded by political families and dynasties, diluting their hold on the court. He is also said to have been one of the most peaceful of the Mwamis with no real bloodshed in his name. But then again, this is also relative. And now to our last mommy of the day, the famous Kigeri Rabugiri, who like his kin, Gahindiro, also has an interesting heritage slash backstory. Rabugiri was preceded by Mutara Rongera. And our mommy story starts with Rongera's mother, the Mugabekazi of the day and her influence over the courts. Now, in her bid to secure her clan's dominance, her clan being the Abakono in the noble homes, she set it up so that her son would have to marry an Abakono woman, which would mean that the next Umugabekazi would come from there. So far, we're together, yes? The thing is, this was not on because what she was planning on went against the tradition which stated that the Umugabe Kazi must come from a different clan to avoid the very dominance she was trying to create. Anyway, despite her best laid plans, her son, Rongera, just did not comply. So he, like his ancestors, was a warrior king who was out leading his armies in battle. And during one of these campaigns, Rongera only went and slept with his brother's wife. Shock and horror. And as if that wasn't enough, our mommy added more insult to his mother because the woman was not an abakono. Oh, you can just imagine that family meeting, right? Because then to really cement all of this, the result of their physical union was a baby boy called Sezisoni. Now, the boy was royalty through and through, and he was formally recognized as Rongera's son. So two things then happened as a result of this official recognition. The first was, he was given a name to suit his status. His new name was, yep, you guessed it, 
Rwabugiri, and his mother's status was then elevated to the Umugawekazi. When Rabugiri came of age, he and his maternal uncles ensured a clear path to his throne and rule by disposing, yes, I said that, disposing of potential rivals who could raise a legit challenge on their own. So they disposed of the Igikoma Ngomas, remember the princes, and others who through their royal lineage could challenge or overthrow him. They were either killed or exiled. As you can imagine, this bloody rise to power further fueled his suspicions and it is said he moved the kingdom's capital regularly. I read somewhere that he did so 36 times in the course of his 30-year rule. Like, that's a lot. And meanwhile, it's not like he was just idling about, oh, no, 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 no. He's actually renowned and praised as a great warrior king. They sang songs and poems about his conquests. Under his reign, the kingdom expanded and increased wealth through more land, cattle, and resources. His subjects both feared and respected him for this, and he in turn was a very powerful mommy with, with a very strong grip on his kingdom. In order to maintain his power, he placed loyalists in the courts, elevating those who were not necessarily party to the traditional nobility of these into these spaces. He then leveraged on this more favorable setup to make some fundamental changes in the internal kingdom's administrative structures to basically better suit his liking. He changed the royal rituals and moved from the hereditary to a more delegated slash chosen method of ascension to the throne. This guy was not playing. So as we leave our royal men, Let's have a look at the royal women as we finish off and head to the end of part one of the Rwanda kingdom. I mean, the importance of the maternal lineage and clan was clear in this society from the Mwami to the average subject. So I believe that these royal women deserve a special mention, right? But I know that we have very little time left, so I'm just going to speedily go through this. We heard a little bit about the politics of having an Umugabekazi, the queen mother. This woman being the most powerful woman in the kingdom, who in addition to this also held immense influence and sway in the selection of the next Mwami. They had power in both the socio-political sphere and were also interestingly trained and respected and formidable strategists when it came to the military. One good example is Niratunga, the Umugabekazi of Yuhi Gahindiro, who we just heard about. Her kin benefited from her skills and it was she who set up the regiments under her son. She was a formidable leader whose troops were loyal to her and she was able to hold a real tight grip over them. Under her watch, she said to have put the fear of the ancestors in the soldiers, so much so that they daren't even keep any of the spoils of war for themselves because the punishment was the death penalty. Such boss moves. And on that note, let's wrap it up. So what was going on in the rest of the world whilst this was happening in our kingdom? Well, in 1415, Jan Hus was burned at the stake as a heretic at the Council of Constance. In 1440, Obaware comes to power in the West African city of Benin and turns it into an empire. In 1453, the fall of Constantinople marks the end of the Byzantine Empire and the death of the last Roman Emperor, Constantine, and the beginning of the classical age of the Ottoman Empire. There's a lot going on in 1453. In 1462, Soni Ali Bear, the ruler of the Songhai Empire, along with the Niger River, conquers Mali in the central Sudan by defeating the Tuareg, 
contingent in Timbuktu and capturing the city. He then developed his own capital, Gao, and the main centers of Mali, Timbuktu, and Jenin into major cities. In 1469, the birth of Guru Nanak, besides Guru Nanak, is revered by Hindus and Muslim Sufis across the Indian subcontinent. In 1494-1559, the Italian wars lead to the downfall of the Italian city-states. And in 1504, the foundation of the Sultanate of Sana'a by Amara Dunquas in what is modern Sudan. So as we bring it home, in recent years, the use of the term ethnic or tribes have been used in a derogatory manner by colonialists when it came to describing African communities or peoples. The impact of this is felt across the continent and the scars are still very, very fresh. How fresh, you ask? Well, consider this. My parents, personally, my parents, grew up under the brutality that was colonialism. So this is not some academic study, but real life. For many of that generation across our home, our Africa, the effect has been devastating if we bring it back to our kingdom here and look at modern Rwanda and Burundi, who have in the, in the past 20th and 21st centuries suffered tragically due to these divisions. The story and the origins of the peoples of the Rwanda kingdom is filled with a great many twists and turns and some opposing views, as I came to learn during the in-depth study of this civilization. And many of these issues that were boiled over into the tragic Rwandan genocide in 1994 were as a result of political and colonial ghosts and manipulation. But I would like to leave you all with a positive note as you ponder that. A fun fact. Did you know that the Kinyarwanda Kirundi languages are one of the most widely spoken languages in the region, like similar to Kiswahili? And the reason I state this as a fun fact, because in that vein, using our words and our languages is important so that we can start to tell our stories using our voices, for they are truly our people and our ancestors. And with that, until next time, Mubarakiwe. Yenda wa kuhundi bihanga nje. Yeah.